Spooky season. <laughs> hey, yo. Uh, so, hey, at RUF, uh, we're beginning to say, and we like to say this. And I want you to hear this, and I don't want it to get old, just like the Lord's Prayer. We hear that a lot, but this is similar. You are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of it. Um, from Gentle and Lowly, it says this. I've just been trying to find something that kind of matches that reality. And Gentle and Lowly is such a beautiful book for these things. My goodness, if your soul is aching, I, I have free copies. You should read it. I mean, the chapters are literally six or seven pages. It's so amazing. But it says this. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness toward us. In fact, he multiplies his mercies matched to our every need, and there is nothing that he would rather do. Remember, said the, the Puritan John Flavel, remember that this God is whose hand is all creatures is your father, of all creatures is your father, and is much more tender than you are to yourself or can be. Our gentlest treatment of ourselves is less gentle than the way that the Heavenly Father handles us. His tenderness toward us outstrips what we are even capable of ourselves. And in John chapter 16, verse 27, it simply says this, that the Father loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He loves you just for who you are right now? Do you believe that you don't have to clean yourself up? Do you believe that even if you failed today, or even if you failed last night, or even if you failed yesterday or the week before, that he is way more gentle with you than you are of yourself. And he loves you, and he's going to draw near to you. You are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're never so good that you're beyond the need of it. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Um, so interesting thing, right, where we started on the, this, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And we started in what's called the Beatitudes, right? And we looked at what does human flourishing look like? And we kind of broke those down. And we saw that it very much is an upside-down kingdom uh, with reference to the kingdom that we're used to. Um, with, you know, like, those who mourn shall be comforted, or those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, right? And it all culminates in those who are persecuted, right? And this is what Jesus is calling human flourishing, well, this is important to help us understand that whenever we follow Jesus, and whenever he calls us, right, and that gets into the salt and light, that he calls us to be both salt and light, and that's our identity. So he doesn't call you to do these things so that you become salt and light. He calls you to be salt and light and then to live out of that reality. And so, yes, there are good works that are a part of the Christian faith. But if you mix the good works up, you now have a religion of self-sufficiency and you have a works righteousness religion. And so it's not, it's not hard to fall into that. But what we see in the scripture is God always gives you grace and identity. And out of that grace, this new reality, it enables you, empowers you through the spirit to live out your call to be a faithful son or daughter of the king. And then uh, we're kind of skipping over some of the Sermon on the Mount because we're going to go back to that um, in, the, in the spring. But we, we looked at, but, but now we're going to look for the rest of the semester, we're going to look at the, um, the Lord's Prayer. And first we started with how not to pray, right? Don't pray like the hypocrites do. They just want to be seen. And that is their reward. 
that they want to be seen by others. They want to be thought of highly by other people. Their reputation was their idol, is the thing that they look to, right, in order uh, to find value and meaning and a source of their worth. And then Jesus now comes to the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so we looked at how not to pray, and now we're going to look at how to pray. But with the Lord's Prayer, again, I don't know how I'm so good at this, but I can take just a sentence, you know, and make a full-blown sermon out of it. So, so I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer every week, but we're going to take it piece by piece. Um, because, again, and that's intentional, because I think if you've grown up in the church, maybe you haven't, uh, but if you've grown up in the church, you've heard the Lord's Prayer, you've recited it over and over and over again, um, and I think we're actually losing some of the meaning, and so we're going to slow way down, and we're going to talk about what Jesus is talking about whenever he begins to pray this model prayer. So um, if you would, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter um, 6, and I'm going to read verses, again, 9 through 13. I'll read it all, but then we're really going to focus on just verse 9. It says, this is the word of the Lord uh, to his beloved children. It says, pray, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Isaiah chapter 40, it, tell, it tells us um, that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but this word, it will stand forever. It is true. It is the source of truth. And God calls us, he invites us to center our lives upon truth. So let me pray for us now uh, before we delve in and unpack this a little bit. Dear Heavenly Father, would you, would you bring truth to us? Father, there's so many authorities in the world that demand that we listen to truth, but ultimately you are the source of true truth. Not to say that we cannot find true things in philosophy or, or even in the world, there are true things there, but Lord, you bring us what we need as human beings in, in and through your word and in and through your son, Jesus. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart would be pleasing to you, our salvation and our rock. Pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. In 1984 at a beach party, Daniel LaRusso befriends a girl named Ali Mills, a high school cheerleader. And he begins to draw the attention of Ali's ex-boyfriend, Johnny Lawrence, who happens to be a black belt and at the top uh, of his class at Cobra Kai, which was an aggressive karate facility. And so one night, Johnny and his Cobra Kai gang, they pursue Daniel and they begin to beat him up brutally on the street. And of course, at this moment in time, Mr. Miyagi Inter, uh, intervenes and he easily disarms them um, and they begin to walk away and of course Daniel amazed at what just like what just unfolded before him um, he asks master of karate this master he says Mr. Miyagi will you teach me how to do this and initially he says no but he 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 brings them to this right to this karate um 
to this karate place so that he can, he can fight them on, on fair ground. And so um, many of us remember how his training starts, don't we? This is like the, the key remembrance of the movie. Like Mr. Miyagi starts with giving him menial uh, chores that seemingly are just at the service of Mr. Miyagi and being his slave. And he's really frustrated, right? He's sanding the floors and he's washing the car, wax on, wax off. He's painting the fence up and down. You know, he's painting the house side to side. And then after Daniel becomes extremely frustrated, Miyagi demonstrates that the reason why he has him doing those chores was to teach him muscle memory. And so Daniel is, is yelling at him. He's like, I've been doing this for four days and I've just been your slave. You know, and then he tells him to come over and he begins to say, okay, now do it. And he starts to, you know, do the motions. And then he goes, ah, you know, and, he, and he's able to block it because muscle memory, right? He's able, to, he's able to now block it because of doing the repetition. And then sure enough, with Mr. Miyagi, after this time and trust begins to develop with his master, they begin to enter into a relationship. And Mr. Miyagi opens up to, uh, to Daniel-san about his life, right? The, the loss of his wife and his son in the internment camp in World War II. And they begin this beautiful relationship. And so just as Daniel jumped at the opportunity to learn from quite literally the karate master, right? Learning the fundamentals of the art of karate, right? By doing these menial tasks, by, by repeating and repetition, and, and, but trusting his master and knowing that this is going to be for a purpose, right? He's building a relationship with him. He's spending time with him by trusting his words as the master. Well, in a similar way as, as Christian disciples, we too ought to jump at the opportunity to learn how to pray from the master himself, Right, to understand what are the fundamentals, if you will, of prayer and to seek to build our relationship with our master through prayer. And part of that, yes, is given a structure and going through fundamentals, but then it's also building a relationship because ultimately the Bible is about entering into a relationship with a living and true God, that he is real. And he sent his son to die the death that we deserve and to raise from the dead, to offer us new life. And that life is the kingdom that he's literally talking about right here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where he's saying this is what it's like to be a disciple of the master. And so sometimes in the Christian life, it feels like we're just, we're doing this, right? We're going through the motions, or we're going through the things that he tells us to do, and, and we lose the sense of the relationship with him. Sometimes it can get frustrating, right? Some of us wrestle with doubt and skepticism, don't we? Like, why should I pray? Why would I pray? Right? Not trusting that God is really going to do anything. And sometimes we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed. And sometimes we've prayed for the same thing over and over again and to no avail. Right? It just seems like we might as well talk to the wall. Right? Because what's the purpose of it? And so again, we get into this doubt or this cynicism um, because we just feel like God is not answering our prayers. He is not coming close. In fact, he feels far away. Maybe for others of us, we wrestle with the vulnerability of prayer. Um, this is an interesting thing. So, of course, I'm, what do I mean by the vulnerability of prayer? Well, it's scary coming to God and bowing a knee to his lordship, right? Like, 
At the end of the day, I know as college students, you ask yourself, is this real? Is it true? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings? Is he real? Is he really raised from the dead? Is he sitting at the right hand of the Father? We are afraid it's scary to bow our knee to his lordship because sometimes his word and the thing that he calls us to is not in line with our thoughts. It's not in line with what we think we are to do. It's not in line with what we learned growing up from our parents and our environment and our upbringing and school. And we value things that may be different than the kingdom values. And so it takes courage to lean into, to lean into what Jesus calls us to. But also it's scary confessing our failures and shortcomings, isn't it? Because whenever you begin to believe that these things are true and you come to your heavenly father and you want to grow in relationship with him, you begin to get real about your heart and about the darkness that dwells within. You begin to get real about your failure and about your sin, about the ways that you miss the mark, the ways in which we do not uphold the standard that God calls us to. And then we come humbly, right, to ask for help, whether with sin struggles or that besetting sin or personal relationships in your life that you've failed or you've lied or you've cheated or you've stabbed them in the back or you said something um, whenever it was supposed to be in confidence and you betrayed them. Right? Again, confessing those things in personal relationships, or maybe it's our heart's desires, asking the Lord to, to align those things with His desires. That's a vulnerable thing to do and say, and it's really humble. What about our schoolwork or our future? I know none of you are really concerned about your future, right? No, you're not, you're not concerned about that. You're living for today. Of course you're concerned about your future. It's scary. I'm just naming realities that are scary that whenever you begin to see that God is real and Jesus really died for your sins and that whenever you believe in that in his resurrection, you have new life in him and that means your kingdom is now a new kingdom. One that's not centered on you, but one that's centered on God. It ultimately reveals our deepest fears and anxieties, doesn't it? I feel like it, it reveals our deepest fears and anxieties. This is especially hard in a culture that values independence. It values self-reliance. It values self-sufficiency, right? It's pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I don't need any help. I'll figure this out on my own. Why don't you stay over there, right? And even if, even if we do have people wanting to come and help, well, now, now that's hard, right? Now I'm in a weird position. And so we want to pull ourselves up. We don't want to receive mercy. We don't want to receive grace. We want, to, we want to project this we have it all together attitude even whenever the billows of the waves are crashing in and we're about sunk. It's scary. It's vulnerable. Prayer seems weak. seems worthless at times. It seems like a waste of time. Maybe for some of us, you've grown up in a Christian family and maybe you've gone to church. And so prayer is really nothing new to you. You've learned the ACTS acronym, right? That'll tell me who's grown up in the church if you know that. Who knows the ACTS acronym? Yeah, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. <laughs> you know, maybe you know the ACTS acronym. So you've been given tools, you know, prayer is nothing new, but maybe you're not really sure how to pray at all. I mean, maybe you know, like as a Christian, I should pray. 
you know, and, 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 and um, I know that I should pray, but I often don't know where to start. I often don't know what to say or ask or, you know, or what the flow of it's supposed to be like, you know, am I supposed to have it together like my life? You notice your theology, what you believe about God will come into your prayer. If you believe you have to have your life in line, that means my prayer has to be in line. So I can't come to God messy. I can't come to him, you know, uh, with, without my, all my stuff together. And so now we're treating God really like how we treat one another. We're almost anthropomorphizing him, you know, turning him into a human. So now we've kind of avoided prayer altogether, haven't we? We know we should, but because of these fears, because of these anxieties, because of our insufficiency, or at least we think we're insufficient, we just, we don't pray. Maybe you find yourself somewhere in between kind of the the Christian growing up or, or maybe not sure where to start. But wherever you may find yourself this evening, Jesus helps us to answer the question is, how do, how do disciples of Jesus pray? How do we pray? If we're a disciple of Jesus, if we believe and trust in him, and by the way, that's who Jesus is talking to. But he also knows that there are non-believers. There's pagans, there's non-believers, there's people who believe in multiple gods that are in the crowds. We can't lose the, we can't lose the context, and that's important. But he is talking to people whose identity is secure in Christ. And so now he begins to move toward prayer. Praise God that he didn't just say, you Christians need to pray. And then he just dropped the mic and, and, and was like, all right, see ya. No, no, he says, you, you are called to pray, but hey, in his profound grace and mercy, he teaches us how. But how does he do that? Well, Jesus answers this question by offering two truths about prayer tonight. One, prayer is personal, and two, prayer is positional. Number one, prayer is personal, and two, prayer is positional. And I'll, I'll break down what that means. I know you're like positional. That seems, you know, yeah, I'll break that down here in a moment. So number one, prayer is personal. Again, I kind of said over the remainder of the semester, we're going to unpack the Lord's prayer together by breaking it down to its nuts and bolts to really understand the gift of grace and the means of grace that prayer truly is for a Christian or for someone even seeking. Jesus gives us this gift of grace through this model prayer. And it's not merely a prescription. It is, it is a structure and a pattern of prayer that will help us, yes, pray this prayer as a structured prayer as we do in church corporately, but it is also helping us understand Jesus starts somewhere. That's what we're about to unpack. Jesus starts somewhere and he goes somewhere. And that's what we're gonna talk about in the remainder of, in the remainder of the semester. So let's start with this. Let's look at... Uh, Verse 9, it says, Our Father in heaven. Let's break that down a little bit. Our Father who is in heaven. Jesus begins with intimacy. That's where he begins. He begins with intimacy. Jesus begins with the inexpressible gift that speaks to the personal, intimate, and real relationship that we have with our Father due to Christ's perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, his conquering res resurrection, his powerful ascension, and his constant and consistent intercession right now, real time, for his brothers and sisters. Jesus begins with a very personal prayer. Second, notice that there's plurality. Actually, if you read through this, if you notice, there's not one first person noun, pronoun, or verb in it. It is all plural. It's our father, right? Doesn't mean that our here doesn't mean that God begrudgingly puts up with us because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. 
but rather Jesus begins his model with our Father because in eternal, in eternity, whenever they entered into what they call the covenant of redemption, that the Father and the Son entered into a covenant and said, you are going to go and save these people. What he is saying by our Father is saying you actually truly belong. He's not saying, oh no, I'm only putting up with you because Jesus died for your sins. He's saying, I love you. I've loved you from eternity past. You truly belong. You are welcomed at the table and you are at home. Notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say the God in heaven. He says our God. He doesn't say the God, you know, almost having like this sense of a cold, far off, unconcerned deity that is the clockmaker who like some people, right, are agnostic, which means it's like, well, there is a God. I mean, you could, you know, like I'm convinced enough by the creation of the world and how even scientifically, if it's off by a minor fraction, the molecules wouldn't be able to stay or, or they would be exploded out. It's like, there's no way there's not an architect. I can say that there is a creator, but that creator is not personal. He has not entered into his creation. He has not provided right life in him, and he has not died on the cross for our sins. What does that even mean, right? And so there's this there's this agnostic type of understanding of like, yes, there's a God, but he's but he's unknowable. But Jesus doesn't say the God. He says our Father. Jesus begins with intimacy. Jesus begins with prayer being personal, relational, and ultimately familial. That you are family. That whenever you bow the knee to Jesus, not in this weird superior way, but in this way of that saying, I bow my knee because I've, I've sought other things to find life and they leave me empty in fact, Jesus, they leave me dead. They're taking from my humanity. I tried to find it in relationships. I tried to find it in my own ability to, art, you know, to, to uh, cultivate this life that would be acceptable to everyone else. And in fact, I'm anxious, I'm tired, I'm worn out. And in fact, I'm kind of sick of people. Imagine that, you're sick of people because you're living for them. You're living for their approval. And so now we're anxious and tired and we're just kind of done with it all. But the Father sees you and He knows you and He cares and He loves you. That's what we talked about last time, that He sees you, He knows you, He truly cares. You are a family member and He loves you. Do you believe that our Father cares about you? Do you believe that your Heavenly Father cares about you? Do we pray with this assurance of our Father's heart for us? as his children? Do we pray with assurance knowing that he listens to his children, that he's not begrudgingly listening, that he's not like, oh, it's you talking again, right? He's not an upset father who's pointing his finger at us because we messed up again. He's, he's a father who in the midst of, of, in our brokenness, seeking to pray whenever we don't have the words, he comes near and he hears you. And he loves you and he sees you and he knows you. But how is this type of intimate, personal relationship with God even possible? Well, in John chapter 1, 12 and 13, it tells us, But to all who did receive him, talking about Christ, to all who did receive Jesus, to, to receive Christ, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is John saying here? John is simply telling us that everyone who believes in Jesus, right, his virgin birth, this life that he lived in our place, the life that he lived even in the original Adam, that's why we call him the second Adam, because he lived in a way that was in perfect obedience to what God defines as good. To perfect obedience to his will. And you know what was within God's decree of perfection for Jesus was death. In fact, it was so much so that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asked that that cup could pass over him. He prayed that. He prayed that, and praise God, he did not answer that prayer request. Because if he would have answered that prayer request, we would be the most to be pitied, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christians are the most to be pitied if Jesus Christ did not live a perfect life in obedience with the Father's will, if he didn't die the death that we rightfully, justly deserve for our rebellion against the Creator, and if he wasn't raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, confirming that he is in fact the Son of God, who has authority over sin, death, and hell itself, took the keys from Satan, raised from the dead, and now he is enthroned as the King in heaven, seated By the way, the only person who is allowed to sit, nobody was allowed to sit in in the presence of God. The high priests were always having to stand. So he is the first person in salvific history and history of redemption who is able to sit in the presence of God. Why? Because it is finished. His work is complete. There's nothing for you to do or to earn or to build yourself up to be this perfect thing for God to accept. You already have received that if you believe and trust in Jesus, that you are given his righteous record on your behalf and your sins were laid upon him on the cross. He died for that reason. He died for that sin that you cannot conquer. He died for that attitude or that greed or or the ways that we continue to lie to ourselves and to others about who we truly are. He died. He nailed that to the cross. In fact, so that there's no more condemnation for you, that there's no more condemnation or guilt, but in fact, there's freedom and new life and literally a new calling upon your life in which he enables you to do. It's nuts. It's like he planned it. He enables you to live out this new calling, this sonship or this being a daughter. That is what John is saying. To pray to God as our Father is not merely, it's not a human right. It is a spiritual birthright. What do I mean by spiritual birthright? Well, John continues, who were born not of blood or of flesh or the will of man. You weren't, you weren't born of any of those things, but you were born of God. John is saying that, that when the Spirit gives us the gift of saving faith that we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation, our deliverance from sin, for new life, we are in that moment spiritually reborn. The big word for this is called regeneration. And John continues to talk about it in chapter 3 whenever he says that the Spirit comes and goes and nobody can control Him. He's like the wind, but He comes and He gives new life to those in whom He rests. 
Just as the Spirit comes in the beginning and He hovers over the waters of the deep of the chaos, He does the same thing with our souls. He comes to the chaos and the darkness and the deadness and He brings order and He brings life. He brings beauty and goodness because that's who He is. He can't bring anything else to our lives. That's who you were created to be. That's what He brings to us. You're born of God. You can't force this. This is a gift given to us by grace alone. That's why no Christian can stand self-righteously and say you've done anything. We cannot stand and point our fingers at anybody because it is our sin, our failure, is what actually allows us to receive this this life, this, this forgiveness, this acceptance, this righteousness. We are born again and adopted into the very family of God so that we can now come in prayer and say, Our Father. I have an image here. Imagine for a moment, if you would, that y'all are much older than you are and you just you have a heart for adoption. And so you, you work with this adoption agency um, to this orphan child who lost his parents in a car accident tragically, right? And it, it was all of a sudden, it came suddenly, um, and this kid you knew was going to have a really hard life. And so whenever you begin to fill out the paperwork and the legal proceedings, um, you adopt this child. Did he do anything to receive that adoption? He didn't do anything to receive this grace from you to adopt this child. It was a baby in need. It was a child that had a raw, real humility sense of need because his parents had died. He was simply loved and chosen by you. That's it. He didn't do anything to earn that. But you can't simply adopt a child, right? There's a lot of legal things that you have to do that must take place, that are completely outside of us, that are outside of our control, right? That gives this orphan, though, whenever it all goes through, it gives this orphan a new status, right? This kid is no longer an orphan, but he's adopted into your family. He is now a son or a daughter of you. The orphan's identity has changed by a legal process that is completed completely outside of his control. You probably know where I'm going with this, but in a similar way, we are all spiritual orphans, Right, who have done nothing to deserve God's free grace by adopting us through his son into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. He has simply loved us and he has chosen to bestow that love and adopt us. And it is completely outside of our control. And it is through a legal process too. Did you know there's a legal process in, in salvation? It's called justification. That's the big word for it. What is justification, David? It is you are forgiven and you are fully righteous before the eyes of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is called the great exchange, right? I've already said it, but in the great exchange on the cross, Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So now whenever we repent and say, this is not life, this is, that life is ours free. How does the fact that adoption is completely and utterly an act of God's free grace enable us to further understand God's love for us? I'll say that one more time. How does the fact that adoption is completely an act of God's grace, there's nothing you can do, say, wish, hope for, be, accomplish, you fill in that blank to be adopted other than his free grace, how does that enable us to understand God's steadfast love? For his children. 
How might our new identity as a child of God help us with the assurance that we are in fact saved? Christians, for a moment, have you struggled with your salvation? Have you struggled with assurance of your salvation? If you have, that may be a hint that you think it's up to you. Believe it or not, you may functionally be believing that, yes, I believe in Jesus, but now that I believe, it is up to me. It's up to me now, right? Jesus saved me. I'm at zero, and now it's up to me to maintain that. But then here's my Christian life. That is, again, a man-centered religion. That is based on your performance and behavior. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation, it is because you are leaning too much on what you are doing and not enough on what Christ has done for you. Did you hear that? Because as Christians, I know you've struggled with assurance of salvation. I know you have, because I have. And if you're anything like me, if you are anything like me, I know that you've struggled with this. And Jesus points me back and saying, it's not about what you do. It's about what my son has accomplished for you. That is your record before my eyes. You are my son. This is your identity. Which leads me to prayer is positional. What do I mean by that? Prayer is positional. Look at the rest of verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus begins with God's imminence. That's a big word to say. Jesus begins with God's closeness, his intimateness, if you will, and he enters into relationship with his people. That's God's imminence. He's close. He's near. He's not far away. He's involved intricately and interwoven within our lives. And of course, we see God's imminence most clearly in Jesus, because in Jesus' life, God enters in. God's heart took on flesh. Then Jesus moves to God's transcendence. What is God's transcendence? God is not only intimately our Father, which is very personal, it's very intimate, He is also immensely the God of the entire cosmos. That by the word of His power, things happen. That He is so, he is so connected to His word, when He speaks, things go into action. So in the Hebrew, in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, where He says, in the Hebrew it says, light. But it says, let there be light, right? In our English, it literally says, light. And it happens. That theology actually helps us with Jesus because Jesus is the very word of God manifested in the flesh. And so God and his word are intimately connected. So much so where his word took on flesh and revealed his very heart to his people. So he's not only our father intimately, he is also the creator of the entire cosmos. He is a loving father who draws near to his children, but he's also the almighty God, as one commentator put put it. And as almighty God, the one true God who has made all things by the word of his mouth, he is both intimately connected with the world that he has made and he has authority over it. Listen to this. Holding both of these realities of eminence, eminence, (laughs) closeness, nearness, and transcendence, holding both of those realities Intention is essential to understanding the Christian life and prayer. You may be asking, well, why is that? Well, in the Christian life, prayer is indispensable. Prayer is ultimately essential and necessary as we seek to live a life of true faith and reliance upon the Spirit of God in obedience to His call and will for our lives. 
Notice we are saved by grace through faith, but you weren't saved for nothing. Verse 10, don't forget verse 10. There were works that were put aside before the foundation of the world for you to walk in. So works are a part of the Christian life, and that's not works righteousness, but it is how you understand it unfolding in the story. Frankly put, you cannot be a Christian and not pray. Frankly put, you cannot be a Christian and not pray. That's like saying you're a skateboarder and you don't own a skateboard. It is impossible. It doesn't make sense. Because as a Christian, Jesus teaches us that the way that we communicate and have a relationship with our Father is through prayer, united to Jesus Christ through faith, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, quite literally taking our broken, frail words and communicating those to a Father who loves us and embraces us. That is the true understanding of prayer. So how is prayer positional? Prayer is positional in the sense that Jesus is instructing believers to position themselves in their proper place. That's what I mean by prayer is positional. Yes, those who are in Christ are enabled to go to God as Father, and they're enabled by grace to go into the throne room. But at the same time, Jesus is teaching us that there is a distinction between creator and creation that there is a fundamental distinction between him and us, that Proverbs tells us that his ways are above our ways, and his knowledge, his knowing is above ours. And so there's a raw humility and a dependence. That's what I mean by positionally. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in the very first petition of the prayer. He says, hallowed be your name. Have you ever been confused by this, that word hallowed? Maybe, I mean, maybe you grew up in the church, you're like, okay, that's been explained to me. But like, to be honest, like hallowed is weird language to me. Maybe it's just me, but hallowed be your name. I've been confused by that. Jesus is not saying that God's name could be any holier because I think that's where we go, right? Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name, I did. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying. One author put it this way. I, I like this image, so I, I'm, I'm taking it from them. Glorifying God isn't like using a microscope making small things bigger. Rather, it's like using a telescope, bringing into view things that are unimaginably large. The original word for hollow or hallowed means to be set above us in a proper position according to our creaturely position as not only high, but also holy. Not only good as a father, but also transcendent and holy other. As central and key and important to our entire existence. It's like trying to live without the key. It's trying to go into your house without the key to it. Nothing is going to make sense. You're going to be on the porch for your entire life, wondering why you can't get into the nice warm weather. Central and important so that all the world and all created things see and know God for who he truly is. Whenever he says, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, what he is saying is, Lord, I am praying that the whole world understands who you truly are. That's, that's what Jesus is asking. He starts with intimacy, our Father. He starts also with that transcendence in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, I pray that everyone, all creatures everywhere will understand your character that they will understand who you are and your righteousness and your heart for them and your love. 
and that they will properly revere and adore and obey you. Why? Not because to enslave them, but to allow them to flourish as a human being because you created them to flourish. They're only going to do that whenever they're in line with your will. They think they're in love. That's lust. They think this is what's going to bring life. That's going to bring death. They think that this is what's going to bring meaning and truth and all those things. It's actually going to still kill and destroy because there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And for a time, the kingdom of darkness will have power. And he is after you like a, like a lion. Calvin said it this way, We would wish God to have the honor he deserves. Men should never think of him without the highest of reverence, because he is both Father and Holy Other. Prayer is positional because Jesus starts with hallowed be your name as the first petition. This is important because it goes into six petitions. There's an intro and then six petitions, and this is a petition. He's humbly asking God to reveal his holy character to the world and also his, his nearness through Jesus. But this first petition, it holds all the other petitions together. And I'll hopefully say that next time, that this petition, hallowed be thy name, it holds all the others in line. Jesus is gently commanding us to pray that God would reveal his real identity so his creatures will rightly position themselves under his holiness, his honor, and his reverence. And that is actually how we flourish as humans, believe it or not. It is true. It is hard. It is frustrating. It is humbling because we have to put our self second. That believe it or not, you're not the king of the universe. Believe it or not, you're not even the king of your own life. How are you doing? How are you doing with that? How are you doing being the king of your own life? How's that going for you? I say it tongue in cheek, but I'm like, I've been there, y'all. I have been there where I quite literally thought that my word was truth and that I live for my own desires and whatever I want. And all that did is leave me empty and insecure and anxious and afraid and alone. But God didn't give up on me. One author put it this way, to pray this prayer is to ask that God would do a miracle in our hearts, in our actions, and in our world, that his name would be ultimately set apart. It makes plain to God our chief desire. What is our chief desire according to the Westminster Confession of Faith? To glorify him and enjoy him forever. Where do you think they got that? To glorify him and order our lives based on who he is, his authority in our life, his word that instructs our lives to order it a certain way because he's a heavenly father who draws near in his son, who dies the death that we deserve to raise again new life, a new creature in him and actually live out the life that he calls us to live. That's not works righteousness. That's called freedom. So I'm going to end with just a couple of... Um, applications. I want to get practical since we're talking about prayer. So hopefully each time I'll get super practical. Number one, whenever we pray, don't be afraid to say our father. Don't pray. Don't be afraid to say my, my, my father. Oftentimes, if you ask some of my students, I say Abba because Abba is the most intimate Aramaic that Jesus uses. And so actually here, whenever we see father, he is saying Abba. Just try that. And if you're uncomfortable with that, maybe you're not believing the gospel the way that you thought you were. Because Jesus died for you to have this birthright. So very practically, pray to Abba. Don't pray to God. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, don't, don't say like just God, right? He's not some far off deity. He's close. He's 
intimately interwoven into your life. He cares, he sees, he knows, he loves. Pray to our Abba, our Father. Pray intimate, personal, familiar, uh, familial prayers. Number two, pray in community. Because again, this whole prayer is our Father um, in heaven. It's all plural. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, right? Pray in community with others. Pray the entirety of the Lord's prayer in corporate, not individual prayer. How can you do this? How can you begin to do this? Well, I'm going to plug community groups, right? Because this is one way that we not only read God's word, but we also pray together. If you say, well, how do I pray in community? Come to a community group. Get plugged into the gals community group, the co-ed or the guys community group. I know you're busy, but the reality is, is like we need to walk with each other. And through this prayer, God shows us that we need each other. He shows us that, holy smokes, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be really hard, but if you have each other, sons and daughters, if you have each other, you're going to experience me through other Christians, Lord willing. I know that's not every person's experience, and I lament that. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray it in, you know, we we have this weird thing this year, not weird, but we have this new thing. Um, It's on-campus prayer group, and I think one of our students is doing it and our intern. If you want to pray in community, come to one of those things. If you have like, it's literally like 20 or 30 minutes, come and pray the Lord's prayer together and then learn and allow the Lord, pray it slow and allow the Lord's prayer pattern to teach you how to pray like Jesus prays because it's not, it's not prescriptive. Jesus is giving us a good prayer, a model prayer, but he's also showing us that we can pray in different ways. You know what the last one is? Practically ask someone to pray with you. I'm not going to say, let me see a show of hands, but I'm, I'm willing to bet it's few and far between. How many college students have asked other college, hey, will you pray with me? Can we find time to pray together? Wow, how about pray? And then pray what, David? Well, pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms together. You can literally pray every Psalm. And it is so beautiful and rich. Number five, allow prayer to transform your heart from what you love to what God loves. And know and rest that that also is not up to you. That in fact, it is the Spirit using prayer to actually change us and not to change God's mind. That His will is good, holy, and perfect, and wise, and above our ways. So whenever we pray, we're not changing God's mind. Our hearts are coming in line with His and His will. That's why you cannot be a Christian and not pray. Because if you're, if you're a Christian, we're living out his will, we have to pray. Because that's what we'll talk about next time, right? Which is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And guess who he's going to use to make that will come? He's going to use those whom he has chosen to bestow his love and to give new birth and new life in Jesus to bring his new kingdom here so that he can dwell with his people again. That's the gospel. That is our hope, and that's what we believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thank you for the Lord's prayer. Uh, Thank you for Jesus not only giving us something that we can pray corporately word for word, and it is beautiful and good, comprehensive, more so than we can even imagine until we begin to break down literally almost word for word, Lord, what you are saying in the Lord's prayer. But also, it's not just 
prescriptive, but it is also giving us a pattern, a reality, knowing that we start with intimacy with you. That's where Jesus starts. Jesus starts with his new identity, or his identity as a son, our new identity, accepting that we are truly a beloved son or daughter of the living king. And then he moves into a petition that your name, Father, he starts with you, that your name would be hallowed, that we would, that we would order our lives based off of your word, true truth, from on high that has come low. Father, thank you for your son Jesus revealing truth to us. We know that we wander and our hearts are afraid, but I pray that we would continue to pursue you as you have so relentlessly pursued us by your grace and mercy alone. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. All right, ministry team, you can come out. Oh, did I? All right. The last question oh, is how deep the Father's love for us. 